Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai. And you are listening to Food Nonfiction, the incredible true stories behind food. This is a very special episode. We are going to talk to and about one of Time's 100 most influential people in the heroes category for 2010. Her name is Temple Grandin. Let's get started. Our story begins with a case called McLibel. In 1991, McDonald sued a postman named Dave Morris and a gardener named Helen Steele for defamation. The cause of the lawsuit was a pamphlet titled, What's Wrong with McDonald's, which was distributed by London Greenpeace in 1986. Here's a sample from the pamphlet. Quote, The menus of the burger chains are based on the torture and murder of millions of animals. Most are intensively farmed with no access to fresh air and sunshine, and no freedom of movement. Their deaths are barbaric. Humane slaughter is a myth. End quote. London Greenpeace only printed a few thousand copies of the pamphlet. It was only mass distributed when it was reprinted by a group called Veggies. When McDonald's learned about the pamphlet in 1987, they warned Veggies with a defamation lawsuit. But they agreed to back down after Veggies changed some of the wording in the pamphlet. However, McDonald's dealt with London Greenpeace in a very different way. McDonald's did not approach London Greenpeace with a warning of a lawsuit. Instead, they hired private investigation firms and sent spies to infiltrate the group from 1989 to 1991. Because London Greenpeace was unincorporated, McDonald's had to sue individuals, so they needed to find out the names of the people to sue. While the defendants lost the legal battle, the court case was a public relations nightmare for McDonald's. This great embarrassment pushed McDonald's to create huge changes in the meat industry. This is Mark. He designs livestock handling systems. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Mark. This is Lillian calling from Food Nonfiction. Hi, Lillian. My name is Mark Beesing. I work for Temple Grandin. I'm her sole employee of Grandin Livestock Handling Systems. We've also been best friends for going on 22 years now. I design everything in the slaughter plant up to the point where the animals are killed. I read about the McLibel case. Was that an important event that propelled concerns for animal welfare? Yes, it was, because it jump-started the worldwide animal welfare movement. And from that, McDonald's went on to develop the most comprehensive and the most impressive animal welfare program worldwide. And they set those standards following that case because they wanted to avoid that type of litigation in the future. In 1999, McDonald's hired Temple Grandin to audit their meat providers. My name's Temple Grandin. I am professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Tell us, what were the slaughterhouses like before you entered the field? They were very bad. Most of the problems were bad management, uh, never repair anything, treat animals really roughly. You know, the bad old days were really bad. And then, 1999, I was hired to uh, implement the uh, McDonald's and Wendy's audits. And now when you had a big customer insisting that people do things right, then they started to do things right. And I developed a very simple scoring system that worked really well. Dr. Grandin's scoring system is the worldwide gold standard for the humane treatment of meat industry animals. 
Two things made the scoring system extremely successful. Number one, it is completely objective. Dr. Grandin over the years, and I helped with some of this, developed guidelines for what's acceptable. This is all done through very objective scoring methods, like falling down. Cattle either fall down or they don't. It's a yes or no question. There's no room for interpretation. If you reach a certain level of cattle falling on concrete, then these large companies will come to you and say, listen, you know, we audited your program. We found this many cattle were falling on concrete. You have to fix your floors. You have to make the floor small and slip. Otherwise, we may not buy beef from you anymore. The way the scoring system works, it works on the same principle as food safety systems, hazard analysis, critical control points. You don't measure a hundred different things. One of the most important things to measure that are outcomes of bad practices, either bad equipment or poor management. It's sort of like traffic rules. If you were going to just enforce three traffic rules, what would be the three most important traffic rules to enforce for public safety? Well, they would be speeding, stop sign violations, and drunk driving. If you enforce those three things, you probably get 90% of the safety. You know, stuff like left turns and some other things, that's a lot less important. The important thing I want to emphasize is objectivity, and that we want to take the, the guesswork or the emotion out of determining whether animals are treated well or not, and avoiding situations where people can say, well, I just don't think the animals are happy. Well, did they fall down? Yes or no. Did there, was the cattle prod used? Yes or no. Did they vocalize? Yes or no. Those are the kind of objective scoring methods that anyone can duplicate. The second thing that has made the scoring system successful is that it was adopted by major companies like McDonald's. They're the largest buyers of beef in the world. And everywhere that they buy beef from, they inspect those slaughter plants for humane handling. And if those slaughter plants don't meet their guidelines, they drop them from their supplier list. So that has been the biggest driver of the animal welfare movement around the world. When McDonald's first established that program here in the U.S., there was a couple of large companies here that just thumbed their nose at the whole be kind to cattle movement. And it cost them big time. And now even those who were reluctant, you know, have moved well forward in this because it's taught them some very important lessons. What got them to change was um, when a plant was thrown off the McDonald's food supplier list, they lost a million dollars worth of business in a year. That, that was a motivation to make them change. There were 75 original suppliers when they started the program Three plant managers got fired. You know, it gets down to, you know, doing things right. Today, over half the cattle in North America are handled in the humane systems designed by Temple Grandin. But it has been a long, hard battle to change slaughterhouses for the better. How did you break into the industry and gain respect for your work? Well, I started out uh, writing for our state farm magazine back in the 70s. Being a girl going into a man's industry in the 70s was extremely difficult. And I got a reputation for writing good articles. And people found that some of the things I designed worked. I basically had to break into it one project at a time. Lots of perseverance. Temple has led an extraordinary and heroic life. It was against all odds that she has managed to create worldwide change and improve the living and dying conditions of countless animals. In 2010, HBO released a film about Dr. Grandin's life. 
The film was Temple Grandin, starring Claire Danes as Temple. We spoke to the incredible screenwriter Christopher Monger. Yes. This is Lillian calling from Food Nonfiction. Oh, hello. Hi, my name is Christopher Monger. How did you first hear about Temple Grandin? I was listening to Terry Gross's show on NPR, a show called Fresh Air, and Temple had just released a book. It was about how animals think. And I had just got a dog that was completely out of control. And all the things she was saying about um, how animals communicate and how to communicate with them seemed to make much more sense than anybody else I'd listened to. So I went out and bought all her books. Did you pitch the script for Temple's biopic, or were you asked to write it? It was, it was neither. What happened was that HBO had optioned her books and had been trying to get a script for several years and had, had failed to get a script that they liked and had brought on new producers and they were casting around for a new writer. And I heard that they were looking for someone. And I, I, by this point, I was kind of obsessed with her. <laughs> and I knew the people at HBO and I went in and basically begged for the job. I kept saying, I know how to do this. I know this material. I, I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> and after, I think, about four interviews, they finally relented and let me have a crack. For our listeners that haven't seen the movie yet, can you give us a recap of Temple's early life? Temple was a child um, who had learning disabilities that her parents couldn't understand. And when they took her to be evaluated, the, the diagnosis they were given was autism, which at the time was thought to be a form of, believe it or not, childhood schizophrenia. And luckily her mother was a very intelligent and very clued in woman. She was a documentary filmmaker. And she ref just refused to believe that there was nothing that could be done. And she worked extensively with Temple, refusing to send Temple off to an institution or refusing to send Temple even to special schools and worked and worked and worked with her. And when she did eventually send her away to school, she sent her to a very progressive and very open school where Temple um, managed to find some wonderful teachers, especially a guy called uh, Carlo, who uh, helped her. And Temple, with a combination of the help from other people and her own intuition managed to really overcome and thrive. In Temple's TED Talk, she praises the movie for its accurate portrayal of her thoughts and some of her experiences. How did you learn so much about her? It was a combination of, of reading everything, but I, I think it was also an intuition. I, I kind of got her. I, I can't describe it very much better than that. I had a, a nephew who had a thing called Williams Syndrome, which is, Temple describes it as being the opposite to autism. The, the brain is, is rewired in almost a mirror image. And kids with Williams Syndrome, for instance, are very social, very verbal. So I, I'd grown up, my nephew was born when I was 11 years old, so he was kind of like a little brother, so I, I'd kind of grown up with him. So I'd been around kids outside of the normal spectrum, you know, and there was a, he wasn't like Temple, and Temple wasn't like him. 
but I kind of got an insight through that. So did you never speak to Temple? It almost seemed like you did some kind of extensive interview with her. No, I, I did. I, I went to meet her where she uh, lives and teaches in um, Colorado. Um, but I only spent a couple of days with her, and by then I had a fairly strongly rounded idea of her, and, and really it was a case of kind of almost testing hypotheses. You know, <laughs> would you say this or would you say that? Do you like this or do you like... You know, it was, it was, um, it was, it was almost like you know, making sure that she fit the image that I had. And, of course, the wonderful thing was to have her as a resource so I could call up Temple at any time and say, look, I just wrote this line of dialogue. Would you say this or would you say it like this? And, you know, and she, and the, because Temple's autistic, I never had to have phone calls where it was like, you know, what kind of, how's your day, where are you, how's it going? You know, it didn't have to do any of that. I just say, Temple is Chris, the screenwriter. Uh, would you say this or that? Um, I don't like Jello. Or, you know, Jello doesn't agree with me. Which is it? You know, and um, I didn't do that very often. But it was it was great to be able to have that. You know, and um, and we showed her the script when it was done, and she had a couple of minor changes. And then, of course, we were blessed with Claire Danes, who just nailed it. I mean, she just nailed Temple completely. I, I saw on set. It was, I was there one of the days when Temple visited, and it was so bizarre to see Temple and Claire Danes in Temple outfit and makeup and hair and all the rest of it, and to see the young Temple with the older Temple next to each other and go, oh my God. And Temple was, Temple was watching the monitor while she was doing takes, going, I do that, I do that, yes, she, I do that. So, so it was... Um, and Mick Jackson, the director. I mean, you know, every, it, was, it was just one of those blessed projects where everybody seemed to be in sync, you know? Some of the events in the movie were surprising, and I really wanted to find out from you uh, which things actually happened in her life. So, did Temple actually eat jello and yogurt for most of her meals? Yes. Wow. There, there, there's, there's almost nothing in the movie that's not true. I, I don't, don't think we invented anything. We we collapsed timelines and we made two characters into one or something like that, you know, whatever. But I, I don't think we strayed from the truth anywhere. Um, people often ask me, did she really have a, a blind roommate? And the answer is yes. And she's, I think, still in contact with her. Oh, and people really put bull testicles on her car? Yes. And did she dress up like a man to sneak into the slaughterhouses? Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all true. I, I didn't make anything up. In the movie Temple Grandin, you dressed up as a man at one point. Why did you feel that was necessary? Well, I snuck into a lot of places, um, and they actually did put bull testicles on my vehicle. That actually happened. But wow. the, one of the main ways I managed to get back into that feed yard when I got my press pass and there's a scene in the movie where I walked up to the editor of the Farmer Ranchman and I got his card. I actually did that. I swear to God, it didn't make anything up. If, if anything, you know, the sad thing is the stuff that got left out. Um, and there was a, a wonderful scene we just didn't have room for, which is the moment where Temple realized that hugging could actually calm her down was she went to a 
funfair. Um, this, the school took a bunch of kids out to the funfair, and there was a, a thing you don't see in funfairs anymore. They used to have these huge cylinders, and you'd get inside, and you'd all stand against the wall, and it's, it was a centrifuge, and the thing would spin around, and the force of the centrifuge, you'd be held against the wall, and then the floor would drop out, and you'd all go, oh, you know, I'm going to fall out, because you don't, because you're held by centrifugal force, yeah? And these kids went thinking they'd freak her out. They said, oh, come in here, this will be great, this will be great. Come on, come on this ride, come on this ride. And Temple didn't want to look like a, you know, a scaredy cat, so she, she went in, and this thing went, and, and all the kids were waiting for her to flip out, but she found the sensation of being held against the drum to be really calming and relaxing. And that happened before she saw the cattle in the... In the, in the enclosures. Uh, so so those, those two events were what gave her the idea of the squeeze machine. You did a fantastic TED Talk back in 2010. Can you describe what you mean yes. when you say the world needs all kinds of minds? Well, I'm a visual thinker. And when I first started out, I didn't know that... Um, I thought everybody was a visual thinker. I didn't know there was different kinds of thinking. You know, then I slowly discovered that there's word thinkers. Then there's also mathematical pattern thinkers and you need to have um, the different kinds of minds the individual thinkers to prevent messes like the fukushima nuclear power plant meltdown that was a visual thinking mistake not real smart when you live next to the sea to put that super important uh, emergency cooling pump and the generators that run it in a non-waterproof basement i mean electric things don't run underwater there's no way i would have made that mistake i can't design a nuclear reactor but Maybe I ought to be designing a safety system because I would have seen the water going into the basement. Dr. Grandin's visual thinking has helped her visualize the world from the cattle's perspective. Seeing the world in, in pictures, I think, <coughs> makes it easier to understand working with animals. Because animals don't think in verbal language. Their memories are going to be a picture, a sight, a smell. And, and when I did some of my very early work with cattle, I noticed they would uh, refuse to go through a shoot if a coat was hanging on a fence. Dr. Grandin observes slaughter plants from the eye level of the cattle. She noticed there were many things that seem innocuous to us that we would never notice that would make cattle stop walking. Things that cause little movements that cattle might notice out of the corner of their eye would be of concern because they are prey animals and they need to be watchful. Little things like a paper towel hanging down or a reflection on a mud puddle. Uh, little distractions that we tend to not notice, the cattle noticed. And uh, so when you think in language, you tend to overgeneralize. Animals live in a sensory-based world. Humans categorize things into what we have labels for. Language allows us to generalize things by pulling them into categories. But animals like cattle can be very specific. For example, if a cow has only ever been handled by people riding horses, they might be frightened of people walking on the ground, because those are two different things. It is important to understand what frightens or calms cattle in order to handle them, rather than ineffectively yelling at cattle or using electrical prods to get them to move there are simple principles that we can learn from Temple Grandin. Well, just getting people to understand some behavioral principles of working cattle. You know, uh, respecting the flight zone, for example. 
if an animal rears up in a chute, the big mistake that people make is to run up and try to push it down. That just makes it more, more upset. What you need to do is back up, get out of the flight zone, and the animal will settle back de- right back down. A flight zone is a cow's personal bubble. If a cow hasn't been around many people, then people are strangers to them, and so their personal bubble will be much larger around people. We all have personal bubbles, and it works in the same way. If I'm comfortable with you, my bubble will be smaller and you can come closer without getting to the point of making me uncomfortable. Getting a cow to move is very simple. When a handler walks inside the flight zone past the shoulder of a cow, the cow will walk in the opposite direction that the handler is walking. The cow's shoulder is generally considered the point of balance. If you walk past it one way, the cow moves the opposite way. When you're working an animal in the chute, one of the most common mistakes that people will make is stand at the head and poke it on the butt. You're telling it to go forward and backward at the same time. Oh, by the way, the size of the flight zone and the position of the point of balance can change, depending on how you handle the cow. But we won't get into that. All of Temple's slaughter plant designs are based on principles of animal behavior. Mark Deesing built a state-of-the-art facility using Temple's designs. He uses it primarily as a teaching tool. There are three main features to the design. This is the first feature. First of all, it's a, a curved system. Cattle tend to like to go back where they came from. In their mind, they know it was safer where they were than where you're taking them. So when you design in a circular type pattern, it gives them the impression that they're going back where they came from. So it encourages forward movement. The second feature is solid-sided fences. The bottom line there is that cattle cannot imagine danger. They don't have the cognitive capacity to imagine danger. So the solid sides work on the principle that they can't be afraid of what they can't see. So if you make the fences solid-sided and they can't see distractions, people, movement, anything outside the fence that'll impede movement, that also encourages them to go forward. And the third feature. The third and and a very important principle is non-slip floors. And, you know, as a prey species animal, they view us as the predator. And when they're on slippery floors around us with the likelihood of falling down, that increases anxiety. And so you can get cattle on a slippery floor and their heart rate just automatically goes up. Basically, the cattle go into fight or flight mode because slippery floors give them a sense of danger. Non-slip floors are one of the most uh, effective means of reducing stress in cattle because It gives them a sense of confidence or a feeling of confidence, like they could get away if they have to. Whereas on a slippery floor, they feel helpless. So what is the state of slaughterhouses today? Well, most of the large slaughter plants today follow the animal welfare guidelines created by Temple Grandin. By using her principles, cattle can be guided through slaughter plants with much less use of force. Thanks to surveillance cameras, audits, and stricter rules, we see a lot less of the atrocities that existed before Temple Grandin led to many changes in the meat industry. These atrocities include poking out animals' eyes to restrain them, breaking their tails to make them move, or prodding at their sensitive areas like their genitals to get them to move, hanging conscious animals upside down to restrain them, driving animals over other fallen animals, and the list goes on. 
We should note that the smaller and mid-sized slaughter plants are where many problems still exist, such as poorly maintained equipment. For example, captive bolt stunners. Captive bolt stunners are used on cattle to irreversibly damage the brain and are meant to render the cattle permanently unconscious. If these guns aren't taken apart and cleaned before each shift, there can be ineffective shots and a cattle might regain consciousness. Hey food buffs, we hope you enjoyed this episode. It has meant a lot to us to work with Temple Grandin. This episode has been months in the making and Lillian and I are both huge fans of Dr. Grandin's. I first heard about Dr. Grandin when I began working with people with autism spectrum disorder. This is uh, what I've focused all of my research on. It's the entire reason I moved up to Canada. And so we never talk about it on the show because it has nothing to do with food. But my entire focus for my research has been on how people with autism visualize the world around them. So I'm sure you can understand how somebody as successful as Dr. Grandin being able to articulate what she sees and how her autism has influenced what she sees, I'm sure you can see how excited I am. I mean, I'm pretty sure I jumped up and down and screamed for a little while when Lillian called me up and told me we actually were going to be able to talk with Dr. Grandin herself. I was such a fangirl because she's one of my personal heroes. Dr. Temple Grandin is such an amazing woman and we are both so grateful that we got to speak to her. And we hope that all of you food buffs have enjoyed this episode. It means a lot to us. If you haven't gotten a chance yet, please, please, please go online and rate us uh, on iTunes. And write into us at feedback at foodnonfiction.com. Have a great week, food buffs. Bye. Bye.